0: Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, the podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm Fred Dews. Offensive cyber operations are increasingly important elements of U.S. national security policy. From the deployment of Stuxnet to disrupt Iranian centrifuges, to the possible use of cyber methods against North Korean ballistic missile launches, to the U.S. Defense Department's new cyber strategy, the role of offensive cyber capabilities. As instruments of national power continues to grow. Today's episode features a discussion with the editors of a new volume from the Brookings Press on this important national security issue. Herbert Lynn and Amy Ziegart are scholars at the Hoover Institution and co-directors of the Stanford Cyber Policy Program. Bites, Bombs, and Spies, the Strategic Dimensions of Offensive Cyber Operations is the title of their new work. Also on today's show, senior fellow Molly Reynolds examines congressional oversight of the Trump administration from subpoenas to possible impeachment. You can follow the Brookings Podcast Network on Twitter, at Policy Podcasts, to get information about and links to all of our shows, including our new podcast, The Current, which replaces our Five on 45 podcast, plus Dollar and Cents and our events podcast. And now here's Brookings Institution Press Director Bill Finan with Herbert Lynn and Amy Ziegart, who called into the Brookings Podcast Network studio from California. Thank you, Fred, and hello, Amy and Herb. Hi. Hi. I want to begin by asking you a question about the
1: book's dedication, which is to the men and women of U.S. Cyber Command. But before I ask you to tell me what Cyber Command is, I want to step from that and ask, what is cyberspace, since that is the realm this book is focused on?
2: Cyberspace is basically computers and the information that flows on them. You could also add network communications networks to them. So it's computers, communications networks, and the information on them. But then you have to ask things like, is your refrigerator, which is going to be part of the Internet, part of cyberspace? And I think most people would say yes, even though it doesn't sound like it. It's basically everything in the world that's electronic that depends on information or information technology to process and to manage. So your smartwatch is a part of cyberspace, your car is a part of cyberspace, your electric generators are a part of cyberspace, and the computer on your desk is a part of cyberspace, and your smartphone is a part of cyberspace, and the network on which it runs is a part of cyberspace. So cyberspace is increasingly everywhere.
1: And what is Cyber Command?
3: Well, U.S. Cyber Command is a part of the Department of Defense. Depending on when you ask that question, you might get a little bit of a different bureaucratic answer. But it's formerly a component of U.S. Strategic Command, which was in charge of all of our nuclear deterrence and assurance capabilities, space capabilities, and cyber was folded into that. Now, of course, Cyber Command has been elevated to its own command. So if you think about it, it's the part of the Pentagon that is really tasked with supporting all of the regional combatant commanders with their cyber needs.
2: And, its and it should it, also, oh, should sorry, also point out that Cyber Command and the National Security Agency are yeah. now together. Now, whether they should stay together in the future is a big policy question, but they are officially part of one
1: organization at this point. So the National Security Agency and Cyber Command are one entity? That's
3: correct. That's right. Huh. And the leader is the same person dual-hatted in mm-hmm. both organizations.
1: For a group that's been around for a decade, as it is this year, not much has been heard about it. I'm glad to see this book out, which offers a full chapter on actually explaining its history. I also noticed there's a table in the book that shows that Cyber Command's budget went from 120 million in 2010 to over 500 million in 2015. Why the huge increase in budget?
3: Well, if you think about the changing cyber threat landscape, that's changed and increased orders of magnitude more even than the budget, I would argue. So if you look at Director of National Intelligence Threat Assessments, in 2010, cyber did not even rank in the top three threats in that annual threat assessment. By 2012, it was ranked in the top three, and it stayed there ever since. So what you're seeing, the budget is reflecting the dramatic rise in the importance and the magnitude of the cyber threat.
1: Your book is the first volume to look at the use of cyber weapons offensively. Can you give us some examples of what are offensive cyber weapons?
2: An example of a cyber weapon is the web page that a bad guy hacks so that when you click on a link on it, it automatically downloads malware into your machine that gives the bad guy remote access to your machine so that he can do anything on your computer that you can't even though he's sitting 3,000 miles away. That's an example.
3: Perhaps the best known example in the press reported would be the Stuxnet, so reported to be a joint U.S.-Israeli enterprise to delay and degrade the nuclear capabilities in Iran.
1: A problem for many people is that this metaphor, of weapon, is hard. When Herb talks about a web page, it's hard to think of that as a weapon. I don't know if there's a new terminology that will have to enter into the discourse or not as we go along.
2: People often talk about malware, that's software that does bad things. That's only one kind of a cyber weapon. The enterprise that Amy just talked about, Stuxnet, wasn't a weapon per se. It used a variety of different cyber weapons to accomplish a goal. So in the terminology of the book, it was an operation, an offensive cyber operation aimed at the Iranian centrifuges that were enriching uranium So we conducted an offensive cyber operation using a variety of cyber weapons to cripple their centrifuges.
3: But I think, Bill, you hit on a very important point, which is that the nomenclature is confusing Mm -hmm. and it's not particularly helpful. So if you talk to computer scientists, they hate the term cyber, Mm -hmm. right? And we think about, and Herb's heard me say this many times, we've been in the cyber world for a while together, Imagine that I told you that we're really concerned about a new category of capabilities called vehicle-borne threats. And vehicle-borne threats are a series of threats that encompass everything from terrorist attacks using truck bombs to carjackers. Well, you would probably say that makes no sense because it's a sort of a cats and dogs assortment of various threats. But that's exactly what we've done with cyber. So when we talk about cyber threats, policymakers, pundits, and academics alike are referring at various times to everything from criminal types of activities like stealing Mm -hmm. your credit card to massive organized state-sponsored campaigns like Russia's election interference influence operation. And so that makes it very difficult to have conversations and formulate policies in a systematic way because the terms are so broad.
1: What I was going to ask too is – and you just brought in Russia is – give us a a few other examples of of, – uh, cyber cyber offensive offensive cyber attacks that, uh, as you mentioned in the book, come from not only Russia but China and North Korea. I think that makes it a little bit more concrete.
2: The North Koreans brought Sony Pictures to its knees in a cyber attack on the Sony Corporation in 2014. They trashed a variety of computers. Before that, they stole a bunch of, of uh, confidential and sensitive information. They published a lot of it, all because the Sony Pictures had the temerity to issue a movie, not very good movie, about Kim Jong-un and this was uh, regarded as an insult and they demanded that they not release the movie and Sony said no and so North Korea decided that it was going to exact a price from a Sony. So that's another example. Still another example is the Iranian attack on Saudi Aramco, which is the biggest oil company in, in the world. They trashed about 30,000 Saudi Aramco computers and crippled its business operations for quite a while until they recovered. So that's another example of an attack. The Russians are widely believed in the United States to have conducted a cyber attack against various components of the Ukraine electric grid to shut down their power for X number of hours and so on in what many people believe was a precursor to potential Russian attacks on other power grids, including those of the United States. So those are some examples.
3: I would add one other category of examples, which is offensive cyber operations that really have as their primary purpose espionage. So the attack on the Office of Personnel Management, which is largely believed to have been perpetrated by the Chinese government to steal the classification records of more than 22 million Americans would be a classic example of that. If we take a step back, I think about cyber attacks really designed to target three things. One is information, so espionage, compromising the integrity, availability, confidentiality of information. Two is beliefs, so we see with the Russian election interference and attack to hack our minds, And the third is physical effects or things that go boom, right? Mm -hmm. So it could be things that go boom or it could be just SCADA systems, industrial control systems that operate dams. It could be turning computers at Saudi Aramco into bricks. Attacks that have physical effects, which are easier, I think, to understand when there are kinetic or physical impacts of a cyber attack.
2: Of those three, the book only addresses the first and the last. There's nothing in the book on hacking our minds, although that is a very important part of the problem.
1: That's for another volume, That's another the realm. Next
3: book. That's the next, book.
1: That's <laughs> the next <laughs> book. It seems to me from reading the introduction and also the other chapters that the focus for the United States has been predominantly on cyber defense and that this is a new realm to talk about cyber offense and focus on it. Is that correct? And, and if it is, also, what are examples of cyber defense?
2: Well, okay, so it's new in the sense that there is a lot more written about cyber defense than cyber offense for a number of years. Even the idea that the United States government might be interested in offensive operations against other nations in cyberspace was classified. Not the technology, not the methodology of it, not the doctrine behind it. Just the idea that the United States wanted to do it was classified. Michael Hayden is quite articulate about this point. He's a former director of NSA. He says that his staff prevented him from using the term offensive cyber operations, just the term on more than one occasion. Cyber defense is basically what you do to protect your system against Mm -hmm. the bad guys. So whatever we're doing to try to prevent our systems from being hacked by the bad guys more or less counts as cyber defense. And that has been essentially unclassified for many, many years. And so there's a lot more about that topic than there is on the offensive side.
1: The book's main focus is on articulating, devising a strategy for offensive cyber operations. And I thought it would be helpful if you could explain the difference between tactical and strategic for listeners first.
3: So when we think about strategic versus tactical cyber operations, strategic really has two components to it. One is more of a long-term view, not what's going to happen tomorrow, but what could happen over the horizon. The second component to strategic is magnitude. What is going to have a major impact on a target or on a geopolitical situation? Tactical, by contrast, is really about the nuts and bolts of what are we going to do today? So in the typical military example would be a tactical decision would be how do we take out that bridge over that hill tomorrow morning? Whereas a strategic question would be what do we think about the capabilities of this particular actor and how they may change over the next six to 12 months?
1: What struck me is the use of I don't think it was necessarily an intended use of nuclear weapon strategy, but that seems to hover over all this, how to think about cyber-offensive strategy in terms of nuclear weapon strategy, because you use terms like deterrence, credibility, proportionality. And some of the more interesting conversations in the book and the chapters were exactly questions of how do you deter? So how do you deter a cyber weapon attack?
2: Well, let me first address your comment about nuclear strategy and Mm -hmm. and so on. Yes, we do talk about deterrence. But, of course, deterrence is a concept that goes way, way back. It's much older than nuclear weapons are. So it's an intellectual question as to how you might deter an adversary using nuclear weapons or cyber weapons against you. So what we really find in all of this is that many of the same questions arise with nuclear and with cyber, the same questions. But the answers are completely different. So yes, we are inspired, many authors are inspired by thinking about nuclear deterrence, but that doesn't mean that the answers, the conclusions that came to about nuclear apply to cyber. So just to give you one example, there is no experience at all with a nuclear war other than World War II, the last two bombs on Nagasaki and Hiroshima. Fortunately, there's no experience with fighting a nuclear war. There's also no experience fighting a cyber war on any kind of a large scale. No one knows what an all-out cyber war between major adversaries like Russia and the United States or something, we don't know how that would go. So there's a lack of empirical knowledge about any of that. Now, that's a good thing. We're not, not calling yes, for a cyber yeah. war, right, to get the knowledge. But that's an important similarity. Your question is about how you deter. That is a big question, and nobody knows how to deter it very well. There is a chapter in the book that talks about the U.S. approach to dealing with adversary cyber attacks now because it analyzed with the United States has recently in the last year or so adopted a new strategy for engaging with adversaries in cyberspace and it is overtly and explicitly more forward-leaning and more in your face than the previous strategy which was one that was explicitly described as a policy of restraint now what's really clear is that this policy of restraint in the past hasn't worked because people have been still coming after us in cyberspace a lot. And in fact, the consequences have grown. So the United States has decided to try something else, which is restraint doesn't work. Well, let's try less restraint. That strategy calls for what they call persistent engagement, forward defending and defending forward, and increasing resilience. The increasing resilience part is something that we've been doing for a while, but the defending forward and persistent engagement are real important changes. The defend forward means engage the adversary as far away from U.S. networks as possible. That means as close to the adversary as possible. That means either in their networks or in intermediate networks, which may belong to what we call gray space, stuff that may belong to other third parties. And then there's the question of persistent engagement, which means constantly mixing up with them all the time, which, in their words, will force them to shift more resources from offense to defense and therefore bother us less. Whether this process is going to actually have the desired effect of persuading them to not engage with us, well, we'll see. At least one chapter in the book raises that question in a big way.
3: Let me just add, I think this question of what's deterrence good for anyway is a critical question. And if we could just take a step back, and it's worth thinking about what's the difference between just plain old defense and deterrence, whether it's cyberspace or physical space. And with defense, the idea is that if you have strong defenses, you're going to defeat the adversary in battle. But with deterrence, the point is that you're going to convince the adversary not to fight in the first place. Mm Right. They're close cousins, but they're not the same. That's a really important distinction. I do think, I mean, Herb and I may disagree on this, but I think we've become a little too deterrence crazy. I think deterrence in the public discourse has become shorthand for how do we get the bad guys not to do what we hope they won't do without using too many resources to do that and this is particularly true in cyberspace, the tendency tends to be deterrence is the answer. Now, what's the question? Mm -hmm. So the implicit assumption is that we can deter anybody. We hope we can deter everybody from doing everything. And that clearly isn't true. It hasn't worked, as Herb has pointed out in the past. Cyber Command's new vision suggests that the past strategy hasn't worked particularly well. And so it's worth actually parsing a little bit more carefully what types of cyber activities we think are most deterrable and what types of cyber activities are not. And I don't think anyone has a very clear answer to that. It's a really hard question. But even if we look at the latest nuclear posture review... It makes a point of saying that the United States government reserves the right to use nuclear forces or nuclear retaliation, even in the case of a non-nuclear strategic attack. Fill in the blank here. What's in between the lines is including a cyber attack on the United Mm -hmm. States. Do we really think the United States government would launch a nuclear retaliatory strike? after a cyber attack of however consequential damage might be on the United States. Lots of debate about that. Is that really a robust deterrent strategy? Probably not.
1: I'm glad you brought that up because one of the more fascinating parts of the book, for me at least, was a chapter to discuss the use of kinetic force to retaliate as a deterrent aspect. The idea that if someone uses cyber weapons to take out a dam in the United States, we might reply with a missile, hopefully not a a tactical nuclear weapon, to take out a dam in that country— it seems like that's that's a step much farther beyond than most of us have ever thought of
2: well stated us policy has always been that we preserve the right to respond to a provocation in a manner and place and time determined by us so we've never committed to doing cyber against cyber responding in cyberspace to a cyber attack now as a practical matter if you look around with one exception which i'll get to in a minute We've never responded outside of cyberspace to a cyber attack. The one exception to that is that we have issued law enforcement indictments of people, and we've arrested people, we've tried to arrest people, we put them on most wanted lists, and stuff like that. So we certainly have done that. We haven't successfully arrested anybody from any of the major states that have come after us as a result of their state-sponsored activity. I, I think that's true. I'm not entirely sure, but I think that's true. I would add, I yeah. think
3: we've imposed sanctions. We've
2: been ex- mm-hmm. Explicitly for cyber? For sanctions cyber against
3: Russia, you could argue. That's certainly a component. Well, for, the,
2: for the election, if you want. Okay. Yeah. Okay, I, I'm, I'm fine. I, I'm, I'm willing to go along with that if you use the information operation as, a, as an example of offensive cyber. Sure. Yeah. Sanctions and arrests, closing down embassies, that kind of thing. So we have done stuff, but we certainly haven't retaliated in any forceful kind of way. And as you probably know, there is lots of pressure to do so. As I think Lindsey Graham said, we've been throwing pebbles at them in return. We've been throwing bigger rocks at them. That's the theory anyway.
1: You devote a section of the book to the private sector's role in cyberspace. You note that the private sector plays an unusually important role in this area. Why is the private sector an important player in this realm and what are the ways that it plays a role?
3: Well, I think the private sector is an important player for several reasons. First, the private sector is the pretty big segment of the American economy. So we should be a little more careful about, I think there are Mm. different parts of the private sector that play different roles. So the first way in which the private sector plays an outsized role in cyber is that 85% of our critical infrastructure in the United States is owned and operated by private sector entities. The government can't go it alone in cyberspace in the way that it could in other domains. So that's fundamentally different. I'd say the second way the private sector plays an important role, and the chapters in the book get into this, is that there's a lot of cyber activity done by contractors in cyberspace. And so as an offensive cyber operations actor and supporter... You have a number of different private sector companies. So, if we think about what's in the public domain, third party actors like FireEye or before them Mandiant, you have third party actors actually publicizing cyber attacks and attributing responsibility for cyber attacks, not governmental actors, third party private sector actors. So, that's sort of the second way. And then the third way the private sector plays an outsized role in cyberspace is they really are in some ways, the front line. So you think about companies like Facebook, Google, Twitter, social media firms. They're not just platforms, though I'm sure their executives and their boards of directors would like to hide behind the fact that they're platforms. They are battlegrounds, and they're the battlegrounds on which much of nefarious cyber activity is now taking place. And so the rules by which they determine what content is allowed or not allowed, what they choose to go after or not go after, how they choose to take down terrorist content or the rest. They're acting in many ways as governments would Mm -hmm. act, Mm -hmm. but they don't have the same kind of national responsibilities.
2: Let me build on two things that Amy said. The first point was that the private sector owns lots of cyberspace. And the third was what you just said. Both of those facts underscore the idea that the United States has to mount a whole-of-society response, not a whole-of-government response. I mean, the point is that government is only one part of society. And this is probably the first time where you talk about major defense issues outside of a world war, like World War II, where all of society really has to be mobilized to deal with the threat. And, of course, most people, for understandable reasons, do not think of themselves as being at war with anybody else, so getting this whole-of-society response to what people like Amy and me think is a serious threat is pretty hard.
1: Which countries pose the greatest threat to the United States in the coming years?
3: Well, there are sort of four big ones in the cyber landscape that pose significant threats to the United States, and they're not going to be surprising to anybody who's listening. It's Russia, China, Iran, and North Korea. Now, what's interesting about those four is that there are also four states that pose serious and rising challenges with respect to nuclear proliferation, right? Russia, China, Iran, North Korea. There are four states that at various times have been very aggressive at territorial aggression, so Russia and the Ukraine, China in the South China Sea, Iran and fomenting terrorist activity across the Middle East, and of course, North Korea. And there are four countries also that in various ways are really challenging the international order. So you have this convergence of four major destabilizing trends, cyber, nuclear, territorial aggression, and erosion of the international order, all in the same four states.
2: I would add a fifth one, which is not quite at the same level, because they're not nation states, but the the fact that you have a variety of hacking services for hire, non, at least officially, organizations that basically provide cyber attack services of various kinds for hire. So now you can be the smallest nation in the world, you want to conduct a cyber attack against somebody, you give them some money and they'll conduct a cyber attack for you upon payment of the appropriate amount. It used to be that if you were a nation state, you had to have the indigenous capability to do something bad in cyberspace. Now you can just go out and buy it.
3: I think that's a really important point. One of the big changes, what's new about this era compared to earlier eras with threats to the United States in particular is the diffusion of technology, that you don't have to have the material resources of a major power in order to inflict outsized damage, whether it's destruction or disruption. And so particularly the spread of technology like artificial intelligence and other technologies is leveling the bad guy playing field to the disadvantage of the United States.
1: So it has this immense multiplier effect That's for a right. nation. Yeah. It doesn't have to worry about the usual resources that the nation had to have in the past, land and military manpower, et cetera.
2: Great. Now um, all you need is a stolen credit card to do it.
1: <laughs> are we prepared? Is the United States prepared? No. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> That's...
3: How much do you want to depress people who are listening? <laughs> Wait, how how, how...
2: I mean, look, over the past 30 years since I've been working in this business, we have gotten better in cybersecurity. There's just no question about that. So, our defenses against the cybersecurity threat of 2010 are pretty good, okay? But of course, it's not 2019. And the bad guy has gotten better also. And in fact, the bad guy has gotten better faster than we've gotten better at having good defenses, okay? So, that gap is increasing. And, you know, we are getting more and more into the situation. We want information technology everywhere. Amy often talks about being the most connected and therefore the most powerful, and we're also the most vulnerable because of that connection. Right now, my home does not have an internet-enabled refrigerator. In five years, I won't be able to buy a refrigerator Mm. that doesn't have internet capability. You know, you can now buy a pair of Nikes with Bluetooth connectivity that will do self-tightening. Why do I want my shoes on the internet? Um, I mean, this sort of stuff is just happening over and over and over and over again, and it gives us better functionality. Well, maybe, maybe not, but, you know, at some point you may have to ask yourself, Are you getting enough out of that to be worth getting the vulnerability that you'll get on? it? And I think we don't have any good answer to that.
3: And again, I think if we think about the physical domain, which most of us are more comfortable understanding, if you think about what's happening with the Nike shoes or Herb's refrigerator that he's going to have to buy, is that the attack surface for cyber bad guys Mm -hmm. is growing exponentially. Are we prepared? Well, prepared is a relative concept. Are we prepared compared to the threats that we're facing? As Herb says, we're better than we were in 2010, but the velocity of the changing cyber landscape is eclipsing our ability to keep up.
1: And with that, I want to thank you both, Amy and Herb, (laughs) (laughs) for this tour of of cyberspace and and our attempts to uh, put a positive face on it, however negative it might be.
3: (laughs) Thanks so much for having us on.
0: You can find the new book, Bites, Bombs, and Spies, the Strategic Dimensions of Offensive Cyber Operations, edited by Herbert Lynn and Amy Ziegart on the Brookings website or wherever you like to find books. And now, here's senior fellow Molly Reynolds with a look at what's happening in Congress.
4: Molly Reynolds, a senior fellow in governance studies at the Brookings Institution. Members of Congress are finishing up their annual spring recess, but much of their attention of late, like the public's, has been on the report written by special counsel Robert Mueller summarizing the results of his investigation into Russian interference in the 2016 election and possible obstruction of justice by President Trump. Now that much of the report, redactions accepted, is public, Congress must decide how to proceed. The modern Congress must live with the choice the framers made to make impeachment a process to be undertaken at the discretion of political actors. The Constitution does not create any sort of automatic process for triggering impeachment, nor does it describe exactly what constitutes a high crime or misdemeanor. While the historical records suggest that conduct need not be criminal to be impeachable, the actual determination of whether a certain set of actions is grounds for impeachment is left to elected representatives. And because decisions about impeachment are made by elected representatives, the process by which those determinations are made is inherently and unavoidably a political process. But impeachment is not only political because it involves decisions made by elected representatives with preferences and goals they are trying to see realized. It is also political because it involves a series of collective choices made by members of Congress— An individual member can force at least a procedural vote on a simple resolution providing for impeachment of an executive branch office using what's called a question of privilege. Indeed, we saw Democratic members force the House to take such votes twice during the first two years of the Trump administration. Beyond that, however, the Clinton impeachment involved two separate votes by the full House, one sending the report from independent counsel Ken Starr to the Judiciary Committee, and one authorizing the committee to undertake an impeachment inquiry. Before the committee began its actual impeachment proceedings, the full House chamber subsequently voted on four separate articles of impeachment, followed by deliberation and votes on conviction in the Senate. Because impeachment involves these collective decisions, it also, unavoidably, involves the same kind of coalition building and management challenges that are at play in ordinary congressional decision-making. As Speaker Pelosi and other House Democratic leaders plot a course forward— They will have to navigate pressures from various factions within the caucus, with some members pushing for more aggressive action and others cautioning restraint. Given the realities of the current political landscape and the general reluctance we have seen on the part of congressional Republicans to take a strong public stance against President Trump, it seems relatively unlikely that many, if any, Republicans will align themselves with pro-investigation or impeachment forces. Thus, this particular process is likely to be partisan, but just because it is a political process does not mean that this is a given. As Democrats move forward, it is increasingly clear that they will face a hostile White House largely uninterested in cooperating with their requests for information and testimony, not just on the results of the Mueller investigation, but more broadly. This week alone, the White House has indicated that it will fight subpoenas to former White House counsel Don McGahn, issued in connection to the Mueller probe, and to a former official in the White House Office of Presidential Personnel, who allegedly overruled the recommendations of career officials regarding security clearances. In addition, the president's personal attorneys are fighting a so-called friendly subpoena issued to an accounting firm by the House Oversight and Government Reform Committee to follow up on issues raised by Trump's former attorney, Michael Cohen, in testimony before the panel. Subpoenas are an important tool in Congress's oversight toolbox, but they aren't a speedy one. If the target of the subpoena refuses to comply, the litigation necessary to force compliance can be very slow-moving. Indeed, historically, the influence of Congress's subpoena power has resulted from the legislature's ability to threaten subpoenas in order to compel negotiations between a reluctant witness and a committee. The Trump administration, however may be seeking to drag out the oversight process as long as possible with the hopes of potentially riding out the clock until the 2020 elections. In addition, the White House may see political value in simply putting up a fight. House Democrats then are likely to find themselves in an informational confrontation against the White House on a number of fronts, even if they don't ultimately choose to pursue formal impeachment proceedings. And conflict with the other end of Pennsylvania Avenue will be much of what's happening in
0: Congress. The Brookings Cafeteria Podcast is the product of an amazing team of colleagues, starting with audio engineer Gaston Reberedo and producer Chris McKenna. Bill Finan, director of the Brookings Institution Press, does many of our book interviews. And Lizette Baylor and Eric Abalahin provide design and web support. Finally, my thanks to Camilo Ramirez and Emily Horn for their guidance and support. The Brookings Cafeteria is brought to you by the Brookings Podcast Network, which also produces Dollar and Cents.